Your goal in life is to do your best. When you go to sleep at night, you have to ask yourself a question. Did I do my best? Could I have done better? Was I focused in what my goals were? And if I'm doing my best, don't care about the results because doing your best is in itself a great feeling. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and joining us today is Azim Jamal, an internationally acclaimed inspirational speaker and management consultant, and the author of several books, including the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Power of Giving. Azim, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, Sahil. I want to actually start by talking about the, this concept of hope. Uh, Diaga Khan often mentions something along the lines that hope is the most powerful, most powerful motivation for a human being. What are your thoughts on how we should understand hope, especially given in today's times? So the way I look at hope is for me, it has three parts. The first part is about having a burning desire, uh, having a burning desire to achieve something. The second part is to put the effort, the focus and perseverance to achieve that uh, desire. And the third part is to have the faith and belief that you will achieve it. And then I I often think that hope gets used in a bargaining sort of way. And what I mean by this is that, you know, people are hopeful and they, they pray and they're hopeful just because they're, it's, they're trading it for something like, you know, if I hope and I do my part and things will kind of, work out almost as a bargaining tool. But I think I like the fact that you mentioned it's a little bit of something to take action on. So what do you do What do you do to help inspire that action? I think the key aspect would be to focus. First is to have crystal clarity of what you want uh, because the more clear you are, the more focused you can become. And secondly is to have a space repetition of that clarity so it becomes front and center and that keeps you... Um, reminder that and then you're asking yourself am i aligned to that that uh, that goal that i have so i don't get distracted in doing many other things which don't uh, don't uh, matter as far as what i want to achieve right right and so here comes in this whole idea of prioritizing things i think we all struggle with you know something comes up and takes away our attention and diverts our attention and we should really be focusing on what are our priorities and what is the most important, most urgent thing we need to do? And I think one of the things th- one of the things you say is that, and you've given advice on, is at night or at some time, you, you write down three things that are the most important things that you need to get done and to focus on those things. How, what, what, other, what other advice would you give to just help individuals prioritize their focus? Yeah, I think the key is to revisit the burning desire. How badly do you want something? Uh, but if that is not very clear, and that's not very strong, so when the why is not strong, the how doesn't happen. So coming back to the why, why do I want something? Uh, how much importance do I want to give to that, that aspect? And do I have that fire in my belly to achieve it? And then secondly, to become clear about what I need to do to achieve that, meaning that I need to, when I set my priorities, I know I pick the top priority, the biggest bang for my buck, and uh, and uh, and then once I'm clear about that, then have the discipline to to execute. 
And the earlier in the day you execute it, the better, because once you start getting sidetracked and getting interruptions, it's very hard to go back to the, the top priority. No, agreed. I think one of the things they say, one of the sayings is, if you, you, if you lose an hour in the early in the day, you'll be catching it all day. My co-author, uh, uh, Brian Tracy, and I've done a several eight, eight or nine events with him, um, uh, has a saying, it's the frog in the morning. And he's using the frog as a metaphor for two things. One is it's very hard to eat a frog because you don't want to eat it. But he's also saying it's, it's, it's using it as a metaphor, something very important, right? And then I think one of the things we all kind of have in common or we have a balance in is time, right? We all have the same amount of hours in the day and how we're choosing to spend that time is the, it's, we're almost on an equal playing field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What suggestions would you give on how to manage time? I think we said one of the things we said was to do the most important task in the day because you have more energy and you're focused and momentum kind of carries you forward within that. Anything else? Yeah, so I give, I've been giving a tip for the last 20 years. Uh, I started doing that about when I got my book out, The Corporate Sufi, which is the hour of power. You do 20 minutes meditation, 20 minutes exercise, and 20 minutes reading something uplifting. Uh, that one hour you invest in your body, in your mind, in your soul, significantly enhances the next 23 hours. You're more dynamic, more energetic, more fulfilled, because you've done something for your body, something for your mind, and something for your soul first thing in the morning. So, so that's a very powerful way of starting your day because it gives you more energy to do other things in your life. Uh, secondly is that you, know, you want to divide your time in a bal- balanced manner, in a holistic manner. You see, you have many, many uh, aspects in your being. So when you set goals just about your work and finances, it's not good enough. You have to set a goal about your family, about your health, about your spirituality, about your lifelong learning, about your finance, and about your work. Then it's more holistic. And by allowing your time to spread out, I'm not saying you can do everything in one day, but if you spread out your goals and your time allocation in the week, then it's more balanced and you are able to sustain your discipline because you don't burn out. I think one of the things I often see that people get confused is that they're always in this mentality of you should be continuously doing things or continuously grinding. I am of the belief that you know, rest, reflection, recovery are all part of the growing process. Yes, I think, I think uh, you know, um, what I talk about in my books is less is more. Less of important stuff is better than more of unimportant stuff. And I talk about slow is fast. You slow down to speed up, meaning you slow down to build rapport, to build trust, to build relationship, which doesn't happen through speed. And as you slow down, you speed up because you build a strong foundation of rapport, of trust, of ethos, and then the rest happens faster. And the third is to realize that small is big. You see, success comes from big things. You know, I made a lot of money, I bought a nice car, I bought a house, but happiness comes from the small things. Uh, for example, I remember some time back, I was reading an article where somebody was invited to go to White House. It was in the time of Obama. And uh, he was torn between going for the White House uh, invitation or going to his son's basketball game. And it was a basketball game, was the final game, and his son had never been in the final. And he was torn, and he ended up going to the basketball game. And it so happened that uh, his son hit the last you know, two-pointer or three-pointer, and they won the game, and his son was a hero. And in this article, he was writing that I made the right choice because if I hadn't gone to that game, I would have felt so bad to miss out that occasion 
when my son was really a hero, right? So I was quite inspired by that article. And on the same day when I was reading the article, my son had a game, a league game, a soccer game, where uh, I wasn't going to go because I had to pick up my wife. And the only way I could go to my son's game, I would go for five minutes and I would rush to, the, to pick up my wife. So because I was inspired by this article, I went to my son's game. I rushed to go there and I reached there just before the kickoff. And so my son didn't know I was there. So I ran there and I shouted at my son. I said, Tufik, dad's here. So he gave me a thumbs up. And then I couldn't resist. I said, you know, dad, uh, Tufik, I'm only here for five minutes. I have to pick up mom. So he gave me a thumbs up. And then I couldn't resist, you know. I said to him, I said, Tufik, if you're going to score a goal, score in five minutes. <laughs> so he gave me a thumbs up. And so the game started. It was almost five minutes getting over and nothing was happening. So I was just leaving. As I'm leaving, I'm keeping my eye on the game. And before I left to my car, he scored a 30-yarder, a screamer, and scored a goal. And to me, it was a wow. I mean, it was not a cup final or anything. It was just a league game, and the game was not over. But for me, it was a big deal because I made the effort to go. And it was a big deal for my son and a big deal for me. So I wrote a blog that day by saying, you set a goal and you score a goal. So this is a small example, but a big joy, big happiness. So many things in life are not that big, but they create happiness. But we're all chasing the big things and forgetting the small things. So for balance, less is more. Less of important is better than more of unimportant. Slow is fast. Slow down to build relationship, to build rapport, to build ethos. And that creates a better happiness. And the last thing is focus on the small things that give you big happiness. One of the things you mentioned, one of the books you've written is the, I think, the seven steps to uh, happiness. Seven steps to lasting happiness. Yes, yeah, seven steps to lasting happiness. And you mentioned in there that the journey itself is part of the happiness, right? It's not the destination, it's the journey mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So two things. One is, what are other ways that we can cultivate more happiness? And then second is going back to the first tip, how do we go? How do we enjoy the state of being in the flow or enjoying the process in, in our happiness? So the point you made is my seventh step in the book, which is enjoy the ride, uh, which is happiness is not a destination. Happiness is a journey. And to achieve that, the important thing is whatever goal you've set. Remember I said to you, having a burning desire for the goal. So once you set a goal which gets you excited, which gets you passionate, which gets you in the zone, so now you're chasing that goal. You haven't reached the goal, but you're chasing the goal. What you need to remember here is the chasing of the goal is in, is in itself a destiny. Meaning, because I'm doing something that I really enjoy doing, because I'm doing something that I'm so excited about, the fact that I'm doing it is in itself you know, a victory. So right now, I'm doing what I do best, is to talk about what my books are, my, my career, my craft, you know, all that. So to me, I'm not looking for an outcome. The outcome is what I'm doing now. So because I'm doing something that I love doing, to me, the journey becomes a destiny. So that's the answer to your first question. The second question is what other things you can do. So I'm going to share the seven steps with you in the, from the book. So the first, first step is discover yourself. So what do I mean by discover yourself? There are three parts to it. The first part to discover yourself is being clear about what you want, what your vision is about your life, okay? And second thing is what's your mission, your purpose about your life. So the more clear you, you are about your purpose of your life and the more clear you are about what's the destination you want to reach, the more clarity you have about what happiness means to you. 
That's the first part. The second part is to make the right choices every single day, every single week, every single month, every single quarter, every single year, and every single moment, which are choices you make, which are aligned to your vision and aligned to your mission. And the third part to this is being aware of the choices you are making, not just seeing things, but observing things. So you have a clarity of your vision, you have a clarity of your mission, you're making the right choices that are aligned to your vision and mission, and you're aware, you know, heightened aware. Uh, you're observing, maybe writing a journal to see, am I making the right choices to align to my vision and mission? And if you have these three components, you have discovered yourself, which is the first step to lasting happiness. The second step to lasting happiness is even when you have a vision, even when you have a mission, even when you are making the right choices, even when you are aware, you will still come across obstacles, across hurdles, across challenges. This is where the second step kicks in, which is maintain positive attitudes. And the second step, there are also three parts. The first part is count your blessings. As you count your blessings, your blessings multiply. The more you focus on your blessings, the blessings multiply. So if I ask you right now, Sahil, I'll give you a million dollars. Give me your eyes. And you say, no way, as him. I'll say, I'll give you a million dollars. Give me your family, your children, whoever wherever you are in the family. And you say, no way, as him. So you're already a millionaire. So when you count your blessings, your blessings multiply. Okay? So that's the first part. The second part is bet on yourself. When you bet on yourself, the whole world bets on you. If you don't bet on yourself, nobody else bets on you. If you go to the ocean with one bucket, the ocean will only give you one bucket of water. If you go to the ocean with a thousand buckets, the ocean will give you a thousand buckets of water. So the more you believe in yourself, the more the world believes in, your, in you. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will believe in you. It's the second part of positive attitude. And the third part of the attitude is do your best, leave the rest. Your goal in life is to do your best. When you go to sleep at night, you have to ask yourself a question. Did I do my best? Could I have done better? Was I focused on what my goals were? And if I'm doing my best, don't care about the results because doing your best is in itself a great feeling. So those three, three parts constitute having a positive attitude because happiness is not a set of circumstances. Happiness is a set of attitudes. So that's the second step. The third step is about honing your life skills. And there are three parts to it. Honing your life skills means living a, a balanced life. Honing your life skills also means uh, uh, working with pride. Everything you do, you work with pride. And honing your life skills also means being a great leader in whatever leadership role you are playing. So let me take you to one of the, uh, these three steps, three areas of this third step. So balanced life is, you see, people think if I live a balanced life, I can't be successful in business. That's a myth. People think if I spend time for my family and my spirituality and my health and my, you know, my, my finances and my lifelong learning, I won't do well in my work. No, it's the other way around. The more your health is good, the more your productivity will be better. The more you're connected to your spirit, the more inspired you'll become. The more your family is in harmony and peace, you'll be more creative and more innovative in your, in your business. So by living a balanced life and holistic life, it's a life skill that you have that will bring you happiness. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have anybody to share your happiness with or your success with, it will be meaningless for you.
Second part is work with pride. And the example I share normally is many years ago, in the time of President Kennedy, uh, he went to NASA one day and he saw a sweeper sweeping the floor. And uh, President Kennedy had a habit of being very personable and talk to everybody. So he's asking the sweeper, what are you doing? And the sweeper is replying, Mr. President, I'm helping the man go to the moon. Wow. He's just sweeping the floor. But he thinks that by me sweeping the floor, I'm keeping the place clean and allowing people to help the rocket go to the moon. Because he had a bigger purpose, a bigger meaning. So he, he was working with pride. So whatever work you do, whether you're a janitor, whether you're an inspirational speaker, whether you're a leadership coach, whether you're a consultant, whether you're doing a, you know, a, you know, a hairstylist, doesn't matter. As long as you work with pride, that gives you happiness. And the third part to honing your life skills is to be a leader. So no matter what leader are you, you might be a corporate leader, you might be a community leader, you might be a leader in your household, doesn't matter. See, leadership, there's a nice quote, okay? And it's a quote by William Arthur Ward. And he's talking about a teacher, but I'm going to use the same quote for a leader. A mediocre leader tells people what to do. A good leader explains. A superior leader demonstrates, whereas a great leader inspires. So the question to ask yourself in your life skills, what kind of leader are you? Are you a mediocre leader that tells people? Are you a good leader that explains? Are you a superior leader that demonstrates? Or are you a great leader that inspires? And to inspire others, you have to be inspired yourself. It's an inside-out approach. So when you look after yourself, it's not selfish, it's selfless. So if you have these three attributes of balanced living or working with pride and being a great inspiring leader, you have your third step to lasting happiness. The fourth step to lasting happiness is build healthy relationships. Again, building healthy relationships has three parts. The first part is communicate effectively. So to build healthy relationships, you have to be a good communicator. And the greatest attribute of a good or a great communicator is to be a great listener. Because communication, the whole idea of communication, if you're not listening well, then you're not understanding the other person. And when you're not understanding the other person, whatever you're talking about is not connecting, not communicating, but connecting with the other person. So when you listen with your eyes, you listen with your heart, you listen, listen with your ears, you listen with undivided attention, you listen without judgment, you become a powerful listener. When you understand the other person well, whatever you communicate becomes very impactful because it's aligned to how you understood the other person. So that's one part of communication effectively and building healthy relationship. The second part is to value diversity. Every human being, your spouse, your parent, your child, your brother, your friend, uh, your uh, co-worker, your boss, are different from you are because we are all individually unique people. And therefore, other people are different from us. But difference is not a bad thing. Difference is, difference is a starting point of synergy. In the business world, if there is no difference, there is no synergy. When there is difference, you get synergy. So when you appreciate diversity, and I know, Sahil, you talk about pluralism. The foundation of pluralism is to respect diversity, is to respect other people's differences. And that becomes very powerful, and it also helps you to build healthy relationship. And the third part of building healthy relationship is to love unconditionally. 
And what I mean by that is to accept people the way they are, not the way you want to, them to be. So if I accept my wife the way she is, not the way I want her to be, it's powerful as a foundation to build a healthy relationship. If I accept my daughter and my son the way they are, not the way I want them to be, a powerful foundation to build healthy relationships. If I do same thing with my business partner and whoever else I'm working with, that becomes a foundation. So usually when you have a problem between two people, it's not the problem that's a problem. It's a relationship as a problem. If you have a fantastic relationship with your spouse, a big problem is no problem. If you have a poor relationship with your spouse, a small problem is big problem. So it's not the problem that's a problem, it's a relationship that creates it. So to, for my fourth step to lasting happiness is to build a healthy relationship, which means communicate effectively, uh, love unconditionally, and value diversity. My fifth step to lasting happiness is let ethics and values be your guide. Again, there are three parts to it. The first one is ethics and principles are the ground on which you stand. If your ground on which you stand is weak, you can build a big empire and it's going to collapse. And we've seen many, many examples of that. We've seen an example with, uh, you know, Enron, with uh, Lemon Brothers, with many other companies. When they, when they don't have a strong foundation of principles, values, ethics, it collapses in the end. You know, I remember a good example of this uh, Harvard uh, professor writing an article about, you know, he was talking about um, that he, when he was young, he was a basketball player. And he had promised God that he'll go to church every Sunday. But uh, he was playing basketball and the normal games were in the weekdays, but they were in the semifinals. And the semifinal happened to be on a Sunday. And so he said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not going to play because I have to go to church and I promised God. But his coach and his co-players were saying, well, you must play. You're a great player. We need you. So he said, give me some time. I'm going to reflect and come back and tell you. So he went for reflection. And when he came back, he said to them, I'm not playing. They said, why? He said, because I made a promise to God and uh, I don't want to break my promise. And what he was saying in this article was, you know, all these big collapses happen when you start having minor lapses of integrity. There is no such thing as a minor lapse. A lapse of integrity is the lapse of integrity, minor or major. And he said, when you start cutting corners here and cutting corners there, this is how big catastrophes happen. So part of that ethics and values is to have a strong foundation of principles. The second part of it is to be a giver. You know, ethics we define in a much broader sense. It's not just right and wrong, but it's broader when you have higher, better, higher values and you become a giver. And the more you give, the more you create. The more you give, the more you innovate. The more you give, the more you find. The more you give, the more you receive. The more you give, the more you have. So giving becomes a very powerful vehicle for your values and ethics. And the last part to values and ethics is forgive others. You are not perfect. You hurt other people. So other people hurt you. So if you don't forgive others, others don't forgive you. So you're both losers. And that lack of forgiveness makes you unhappy because you carry a baggage. You have some hatred to somebody. It affects your sleep. It affects your prayers. It affects your meals. So when you forgive wholeheartedly, you become freer. So ethics and values is the fifth step that includes, um, it includes uh, having principles and values. It includes giving to others and it includes forgiveness.
one thing I'll add there, then you can continue. Is I think forgiveness to I think forgiveness to self is very important there too. Beautiful, beautiful. You see, and when you don't forgive others, you also end up not forgiving yourself. When you forgive others, you also give permission to yourself to forgive yourself. I have a friend who lost his son. You know, he lost his son because somebody murdered him, and he was going through a, such a hard time uh, overcoming that challenge. But the day he forgave the, the, the person who killed him and actually joined partnership with the son's grandfather and talked about not having violence, he was able to forgive himself because he himself was feeling bad that he didn't to spend time with his son. He was an investment banker. He was so busy in his life and therefore he didn't spend time with his son and his son got murdered. And he was not forgiving himself for not spending enough time with his son. But when he was able to forgive his murderer, he was able to also forgive himself. So you're making a great point that just like you want to forgive others, you also want to give permission to forgive yourself. And, and how do we do that better? Um, for forgiving yourself, you mean? Yes. I think the, the, key, the key approach to that is that um, if you don't forgive yourself, you have a baggage that's going to impede your creativity, that's going to impede your focus, that's going to impede your, your ability to do great things in life. So you have a choice. You live in the past and not forgive yourself and carry the baggage. Or you allow yourself the permission to forgive yourself, but you use that learning to multiply. Let me give you an example. I lost my mother and my father both at about 54 days apart in 2016. But with my father, I was in his later years much more closer, much more expressive, and, uh, and I was ready to let my father go when he passed away. I didn't expect my mother to go away so soon after my father died, but she, she uh, died 54 days later. And my mother was a very independent, positively proud person. And so I was not as expressive to her because she was so, she was so independent. And because she died so, so prematurely, I felt guilty that I should have expressed myself much more with my mom. And the only way I could get over that was by forgiving myself and making a promise that what I didn't do with my mom, I will do in my giving, in my voluntary work, in my community, and I'll continue doing that, and I'll give the benefit of what I'm doing to my mom, and of course to my dad as well. And that gave me the freedom to not be guilty, but put my energy in doing good work. There are other steps to happiness? Yeah, there's one more. Uh, there's actually two more, but I recovered the last one, the, the enjoy the ride, but there's one more, step six, which is... Uh, Awaken your spirituality. And again, there are three parts to it. The first part is to meditate. See, meditation is the process of going inside and going inside and going inside, seeking for God who is within you. Okay? And, 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 and that is one of the most powerful things you can do because your power is not external. Your power is internal. Your power is not outside you. Your power is inside you. Your power is not without you, your power is within you. And the more you meditate, the more you connect with your spirit and you find, you remind yourself of your purpose in life, why you're here. And to remind yourself what is your real gift that you can give to the world that makes you a genius and not for your own ego, but for making a better world. So that's one part of Awaken Your Spirituality, which is to meditate. The second part of spirituality is to learn from nature. Nature is amazing. You see, when you see a flower bloom, when you see a bird fly, when you see a star shine, the flower blooms effortlessly. The bird flies effortlessly. 
The star shines effortlessly and so naturally. Why are we as human beings struggling? The reason we are struggling is because we have ceased to be authentic. And the nature is reminding us, be authentic, be yourself, be your natural self. And if you are that, you are effortless. It's so natural. You know, you fly like a bird, you bloom like a flower, and you shine like a star. That's the second part. And the third part of awakening your spirituality is to turn tragedy into opportunity, to turn a minus into a plus, to, to, to turn a bad occasion to a good occasion. So right now, the pandemic crisis is happening. We have this COVID-19. How do we turn the COVID-19 into a positive? Let's look at what positive. For example, in my family right now, you know, we're having dinners more often together. You know, we talk about many things that we didn't talk about. We're using our sun deck we hardly used before. Uh, we have more time to be home. You know, I'm commute. I'm, I'm, I used to travel six months a year, spend so much time commuting. Now I'm working from home. I'm saving so many hours of flying. I'm saving the pollution of the, the airlines. So many good things are happening. So part of spirituality is to look at the bad and see how you can make it a good. Ruby, the Sufi poet, says it beautifully. If you don't have a wound, you don't have room for light to enter. So when you have a wound, light enters. So wounds are good for us because that awakens our spirituality. And the last step is about enjoy the ride, which I talked about earlier. Because happiness, you know, the first six steps are doing work. You know, discover yourself. It's doing some work. Maintain positive attitudes. Doing some work. Hone your life skills. Doing some work. Build healthy relationships. Doing some work. Let ethics and values be your guide. Doing some work. Awaken your spirituality. is doing some work. But the seventh step is doing no work. Just enjoy the ride. Go with the flow. Yeah, enjoy the ride because happiness is not tomorrow. Happiness is not yesterday. Happiness is now. This moment is happy. I'm being interviewed. We're talking. It's amazing. I think one thing I would further elaborate on, and then perhaps you can share your thoughts, is I often think that happiness, I, I believe that happiness is an internal thing. It is not, your outside surroundings can give you space to breathe, space to do things, but happiness is almost exclusively found within oneself internally. And then it, I think, relates to attitudes of self-worth, self-esteem, uh, self-respect, and other things. I agree. I agree. I think, um, you see, 80% of what's happening to you is how you process internally. Only 20% is what's happening outside. So, for example, we have the COVID-19. Yeah, it's a big challenge. I mean, it's affecting our work. It's affecting our life. We're scared of, the, you know, the virus. But how you process it is 80%. And this part is internal, it's not external. And I also agree about the self-worth. When you are a good person, when you are a good human being, when you're authentic, when you mean well, you don't have any malice, you don't have any, any jealousy, you don't have any, uh, you know, any ill will about people, you're feeling good about yourself within. And so the only time, and I, I mentioned this in my book, directly and indirectly, the only time you should be unhappy is when you hurt people, when you lie, when you cheat, you know, if other people hurt you, it's not your problem. It's their problem. Why are you allowing their bad behavior to affect you as a human being? You only have to watch inside you and see, am I a good human being? Am I hurting anybody else? And if I'm not, other people's behavior is not my problem. No, I agree. I think what happens in, I think one of the things you mentioned is relationships is they're complicated, right? And so 
there tends to be a back and forth of positivity, but also negativity. So it's not exclusively one person imposing on another. It's a balance of, you know, things happening. And in those cases, I think it becomes difficult to kind of navigate. Yeah, I think I think it goes back to diversity. You know, it's uh, because you are unique and other people are unique, you're different. And either you appreciate the uniqueness of each other, each other or you become frustrated by them because they are not like you and they don't think like you. So you may be thinking this person is unreasonable, you know, illogical, not fair. Guess what? The other person is thinking you are illogical, not fair, you know, not reasonable. So, so really, it's really the paradigm. You know, the paradigm of walking in somebody else's shoes and appreciating for who they are, not what you want them to be. That's amazing. And I agree, but I think there's a bigger aspect to life that comes in here because you can be the ripest peach in the forest, right? You can be the ripest peach in the forest, but not everybody will like you. You can be the best and the greatest and not everybody will like you. And you can't please everybody because then you end up pleasing nobody. So I think it becomes an interesting dynamic because we have to kind of choose people who choose us. We have to, you know be with people that uplift us, bring us positive energy and all those different aspects of our lives. Um, and so in that relationship dynamic, you can have communication, you can have diversity and you can be respectful. But I think that you have to consider other, other factors that come in as well. I think, I think that's, that's, uh, that's true. I think, but one has to be careful when you mentioned that, you know, not everybody will like you. I mean, we have to ask the question, is it ego coming in? Why do you want everybody to like you? You are doing a good job uh, and you are contributing something. And why does it affect you if everybody doesn't like you? The issue is that's not, uh, I mean, again, when that comes in, then we have to ask the question, why it is so important to be liked by everybody? Because if you try to please everybody, you please nobody. So you have to do what you're good at doing. And whoever is going to be participating to benefit from me, you say, I'm grateful for that, for the opportunity to be of service. And there is nobody in the world who everybody will like. Even Nelson Mandela, who was an amazing, amazing, amazing human being, there might be some people who may not like him for whatever the reasons may be. And he has to focus on what he has to do for his purpose and his contribution and not be affected by other people's opinions or views or dislike. And so I'm, I, I'm saying, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I'm saying one also has to be mindful because our ego is such a minute uh, thing that creeps in. And most of the time it creeps in without us noticing it. For example, if you say, oh, I've conquered my ego, that's ego. It's an ego yeah, that's like an egotistical statement. Coming back from the back door, right? So, so I think I think it's something that I mean I'm struggling with it. I don't think I don't claim to have mastered my ego. Uh, I struggle with it on a daily basis, on a regular basis. I think I'm better than I was before, but it's a lifelong journey, right? Agreed. I think humility helps a lot, and it's something I've grown from. Uh, is just when I when I am humble and I don't talk about myself or my achievements. I just feel so much better. Mm -hmm. And so I think that helps uh, a lot. But uh, going back to one of the things you mentioned about like Nelson Mandela, right? And that, again, people, other people may have different opinions of him and different ideas of him. Not everybody will like him. Is that I think it goes back to the point I was making about, 
you know, happiness is found within and self-worth and self-respect. These are all internal processes because we have to be true to ourselves, right? And that's the only thing we can, it's, it's this only thing we can control. And I always try to focus on what you can control versus what you can control. And perhaps this is something you talk about in your seven steps of lasting happiness is, is this idea of if you focus on things that are outside of your control, you're kind of giving your power away. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think, you know, this is the idea of a circle of concern versus a circle of influence. The circle of concern is a big circle that you cannot control. You cannot control the virus right now. Scientists are working on it to find a vaccine. So it's a big concern. But what's your circle of influence? A small circle. Your circle of influence is you practice social distancing. You practice physical distancing. You practice proper hygiene. You wash your hands properly and so on and so forth. So the more you focus on the small circle of influence, the, small, the more it impacts the big circle. But you cannot control the outside. So you're right. The more you focus on the inward, the more you have uh, impact on the outward. Uh, let's go back to Nelson Mandela. I think for me, though, right now we are locked, locked uh, I mean, we are locked in in the house. We can't go out. Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 plus years or 27, approximately 27 years. And he was in a cell. I don't even think he had a cell phone. I don't even think he had the luxuries that we have right now, or maybe sometimes go out for a walk and do whatever we need to do. And yet, what he had was two things. He had a vision and he had hope. And when he came out of the prison 27 years ago, after 27 years, he was so wise and he was so blooming in his face and amazing. So how powerful is the vision and how powerful is hope? And we started this discussion with hope. And we're going back to it with hope. Hope is the today's biggest currency. Agreed. And so I think one of the fascinating things I find about him is the fact that he comes out 27 years later and he, he has this, he has no anger. He has no uh, bitterness, no resentment against these people that treated him this way. And the amount, I, I don't have that. And I don't know how to cultivate that perhaps. What do you, what do you think? Wow, no, you're, it's amazing. Yeah, when he came out, he said, if I start taking revenge, I become like them. So what's the difference? You know, they hurt me, I hurt them. So, you know, I, yeah, if you look at the life also of Viktor Frankl, who was, uh, who was in a Nazi concentration camp, and, you know, he was abused and would, uh, so much hurt without, uh, you know, without him doing anything wrong, came out and people were looking for what revenge he's going to take. And he said, um, you know, um, nobody can hurt you without your permission. And why do, I, why do I take revenge? I haven't hurt them. They've hurt me, so they should worry about what they did. I don't, I don't have to worry about what they did. So I think when you focus on meaning and you don't focus on, you know, revenge and all this kind of stuff, you become bigger. And yeah, I know it's not easy. I mean, we're all human beings. We get hurt and it's hard to forgive others. But at the end of the day, you know, again, going back to nature, the, the flower gives this perfume to every passerby. You're black, you're white, you're strong, you're weak, you're rich, you're poor, you're man, you're women, you're black, you're white. The flower doesn't care. It gives you perfumes to every passerby. When you crush a flower, forgiveness is the perfume the flower gives to the hand that crushes it. Wow, what an example for us from nature to give your perfume, to give your service to any, any passerby. It doesn't matter who that person is. I mean, somebody hurts you, you give them forgiveness, the perfume, to the, the hand that crushes you. I want to shift a little bit and talk about actions. And you mentioned right choices, right 
decisions. And we as human beings are by inherent nature uh, fallible. And so we make mistakes. And I, I strongly believe that you should not get despondent and you should keep moving forward. But it is hard at times, especially when you're dealing with things like death or uh, you know other things that kind of are beyond your control. And if there are things you can kind of mend, you try to mend them, but not everything. We don't live in a perfect world, right? How do you recommend individuals look at their mistakes and the past? So, uh, I mean, yeah. So I think, I think every human being, and I mean every human being, makes mistakes, right? So we are, that's why we are human. So I think striving for perfection, you know, instead of striving for perfection, strive for excellence because perfection is only God. Right. So, so you will make some mistakes. Sometimes you'll make small mistakes. I think Michael Jordan said, you know, I think he said, I lost 300 games in my career. 26 times I was given a chance to make the last shot, you know, for winning the game and I didn't do it. And he said, I failed and I failed and I failed. And that's why I succeeded. So even the greatest players in the world fail so many times before they succeed. Steve Jobs, I mean, he got fired from Apple and, you know, he had his journey of mistakes and whatnot. But eventually, you know, when he died, he said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. You know, so we're all going to make mistakes. The question is, the question is, what have I learned from my mistake? If you learn from every mistake, it's called investment. It's not called expense. If you don't <laughs> learn from a mistake, it's an expense, right? So, so the more learnings you have from mistakes, the more powerful you become. But the more you don't learn from your mistakes, you got to repeat the, the mistakes again. Agreed. And, you know, I was reading a quote yesterday which said something along the lines of one of the greatest mistakes you can make is believing that you won't make a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely correct. And I want to talk about despondency and a little bit of, I think, achievement and comparison. And we do this often with others, right? I think we... We are supposed to be proud of our gifts and the blessings. You said count your blessings in one of the steps of happiness. Uh, and we, I think, inherently, you know, try to we compare with what others have and what we don't have. Because there's always going to be people above us and there's always going to be people below us, right? And uh, I think one of the sayings the Aga Khan III has, he says that if you look at the world uh, below you, right, rather than, you know, dwelling upon the people above you, you'll see the world as a paradise rather than a prison. Yes, yeah. So I think you. I think two points you're making. One is uh, comparison with others, and the other is despondency of, uh, you know, feeling bad about not being as good as others in some way, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So let's talk about comparison. So uh, Brian Tracy is, uh, is somebody I looked up to when I was young, and, and he's written 71 books. And a few years ago, uh, we were asked to do a session together, uh, and we did about eight events together and uh, we spoke in Johannesburg. We had about 4,000 people attend our event. And then we co-authored a book called What You Seek is Seeking You. And so I used to look up to him a lot. And then we did a program in Johannesburg uh, of a two-day MBA where Brian had a 294-page workbook. And what happened in the event, the people's opinion was that Brian and me were opposites. Brian Tracy is a business guy. He starts with business. He continues with business and he ends with business. Whereas when they saw me, I was the exact opposite. I mean, I, I, I talk about business, but my, my process is I start with beyond, then I go to balance, then I go to business. 
So even though my, my, my company corporate Sufi's mission is a synergy of business balance beyond, but I start with beyond, then go to balance and business. So they found uh, two of us very complementarity, complementary. Yeah. So now if I try to be like Brian Tracy, I will always be second best Brian Tracy. And guess what? If Brian Tracy tries to be Azim Jamal, he'll be second best Azim Jamal. He's, he's brilliant, but he's not me. So there's no need to compare. Let Brian be Brian. And let Azim be Azim. And we both shine our light and inspire others to shine their light. And, and so we found that, you know, we had eight events and, uh, you know, it was such a beautiful experience. I remember once we were flying from Johannesburg to, I think it was Tanzania, it was a three and a half hour flight. And we had just finished a two day MBA. We'd done the, the 4,000 people event. We were busy in the evenings having dinner with people and we were both exhausted. And he's 71 and he traveled from US 30 hour flight. And we were flying for three and a half hours and we were sitting beside each other. You know something? He didn't waste one second. He wrote a 15 page journal. The only time he, he, he wasted was went to bathroom twice because he had too much coffee. And I can bet you, I can bet you in the bathroom he was thinking. Amazing. I mean, it's so inspiring to see people like that who are world class, but they're still hungry. And that's one of the qualities of world class people. You know, sometimes we feel that they're lucky. There's nobody's lucky. They work for their craft. You know, they've earned their success. And you, you admire that. But so it's a comparison part. In terms of despondency, I mean, if you look at the world today, you know, I was doing this talk for the African community last yesterday, and you know, one of the most sad thing I, I felt after my talk was that uh, after I finished my talk, I was looking at the chat questions because during the talk, I wasn't looking at the chat questions because the moderator was asking me the questions. And one of the questions when I read the chat box was, was really disturbing for me because that person was saying, you know, here are two guys, you and this moderator, who are both successful and you are, you know, whatever. But what about us, some people who are poor? We don't have a meal. I got to worry about my meal tomorrow. You know, and you're talking about these high aspirations and all this. It made me realize, you know, that maybe I didn't have enough empathy in answering the question when the moderator asked me. Because when the moderator asked me about this question, I responded by saying that if we as successful people are not hopeful, what are the chances of people who are really struggling, who don't have enough food to eat, who don't have enough shelter, and there are so many people like that, how are they going to be hopeful? So when you're despondent and looking down or looking up and saying, how come I'm not as good as the other people or how come I'm not as rich as other people, how about people under you? Rather than being grateful for what you have, I'm not saying you should be not ambitious because by you being ambitious and achieving success, you can help others. However, be grateful as well, because there are so many people in the world, you know, who don't have half, forget half, even 5% or even 1% of what we have. And that makes you more grateful for the opportunity and for the blessing and then take responsibility that because I have all this and because I have a chance to be successful, I will become extremely successful so I can make an impact on other people's lives. One of the things you often mention is a quote by the Aga Khan where he, in India where he talks about there are those who are born in such poverty that, and I'm paraphrasing, that they're, they're deprived of both means and motivation to improve their lot. Unless these individuals can be, uh, can be ignited by the spark of universal enterprise and determination, they will uh, go back into renewed apathy and despair. 
it is for it is for us who are more fortunate to ignite that spark. And I want to bring this whole back thing to you. Something you've been talking about is, is spark, right? Um, service, purpose, aspire, results, knowledge. How can these? How can individuals implement? that in their lives? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I actually, I'm, I'm writing a book right now called Spark of Hope, and hopefully it'll be out by October. But uh, um, yeah, I think I think uh, we all have the spark. We already we are already born with the spark. And, and the issue is that, um, how do we rekindle the spark? And one of the best ways to do that is whenever you have a spark, and spark doesn't come often, but for whatever reasons you get the spark, you want to make sure you feel the spark. For example, I had a spark about 22 years ago. It was 1997, October. It was my son's third birthday, 24th October, 1997. And I was doing some work with the refugees in Karachi, uh, Afghan refugees. And I'd gone there as a professional accountant with three degrees, helping to do budget for Focus Humanitarian Agency. And when I was there, I had this, I had this very emotional experience sitting in a hut with 14 refugees talking about how much money they need to live on. And I saw mosquitoes, I saw washroom, I saw the kitchen. I heard stories of how these people had gone from war to war to war, how some children had seen their parents die in front of their eyes, how they were working for 14 hours in the hot blazing sun. And after working for 14 hours in the hot blazing sun, they were only making a buck. In 20 minutes, I got physically sick. So I walked out of the hut. As I walked out of the hut, there were many women and children outside the hut looking at me. When I went inside the hut, there was nobody. When I went out of the hut, they were all standing there. So I was wondering why they're standing there. It made me realize because I was wearing a suit and tie, they thought I was an important person. And most of them were children and women because most men had died in the war. And I don't know if you've seen a small Afghan child. They have a rosy cheeks, they have big eyes and a smile on their face despite their plight. I was there no more than 60 seconds, less than a minute. But for me, it was like eternity. And they were looking at me to, to think and hoping that I could help them in some way. And I was physically sick. So as a coward, I walked away. My cab was waiting. Uh, uh, so I went to my cab and I drove from the hut to Marriott Hotel. I think it was about 25 minute ride, if I remember correctly. I was sitting at the back of the cab and it was a blazing hot day. But I was shivering and sweating and I was crying like a baby. I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. 25 minute ride. If there was a moment in my life which I called a defining moment, a soul stirring moment, it was at 25 minutes. And that to me was a spark. And when I went, I had a sleepless night and I promised, I, I created a vision for myself that I want to help people like that. And this is where my whole concept of giving came in and what I'm doing now. And I haven't let a day pass by since 24th October 1987 that I haven't fueled my spark. And so my message to people would be that if you have a spark, make sure you grab the spark, you ignite the spark by doing something about that spark every single day, every single hour, if not every single moment. Thank you for sharing that. One of the... Uh... I think one of the aspects you talk about in the power of giving is the more you give of yourself, the more you find of yourself. Did you find that to be true in that moment after after reflecting? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, um, Sahil, uh, I was I, I was really a dumb kid. 
you know, in all levels, in grade 12 in Tanzania, where I was born, if you get a one as a grade, it's called distinction. If you get a nine, it's the worst you can get. You can't get more than nine. I got all nines in all levels, except in English, I got five. And then my parents sent me to Mombasa in a hostel, in an Aga Khan hostel in Mombasa. And everybody in the hostel went to a school called Aga Khan School. I didn't get a place in Alkan school because my grades were so poor. I went to the worst school in Mombasa called New Era School. Okay, so everybody in the hostel knew I'm going to New Era and everybody's going to Alkan school. So they were looking at me as a dumb kid going to New Era School. Now, what do I study in A-levels? I failed all my exams. So I studied Swahili, which was my mother tongue in Africa. Uh, and I studied English literature because English, I got five. And so I wanted to work hard to prove these people in the hostel that I'm not dumb. So after two years of studying, um, my results came out in A-levels. So in A-levels, if you get an A, it's a distinction. If you get a B, it's a, it's, a, it's a good pass. If you get a C, it's an average pass. If you get a D, it's a poor pass. If you get an E, it's a very poor pass. And if you get an F, it's a fail. So I worked hard in these two, two subjects. I passed, but I got two E's. Very poor pass. So my life is a mess. All nines and two E's. And then I struggle. My uncle is to work in the education department. Uh, because I was very good in sports, I played for East African schools in cricket. I played for Tanzania cricket team. I was good in soccer. I did some leadership work. I did some service. My uncle managed to get me a place in a, in a college in UK to do ACCA. Not because of my grades, but because of my other skills that I had. And I did my ACCA and I did well in accounting because I liked accounting compared to my, my, my science subjects. Then I came to Canada, did my CPA and my, and my uh, Charter Financial Planning degree. But I was passionate. But what happened in, in, in my experience with the refugees make me do what I'm doing now. What I'm doing now today, I'm a hundred times better than I was an accountant. My goals change, my aspirations change, my vision change. You know, I mean, every top 10 speaker in the world has endorsed my work in some way or the other. You know, I've bought endorsements on all my books. I've spoken with many of them. They are my best friends. So the kind of connection I've made is because of my vision, because of my aspiration, because of the spark I got, because I wanted to give. And even in the books, I've written eight books. My first book, Seven Steps to Lasting Happiness, average, I mean, in terms of success. My second steps, one minute Sufi, average in terms of success. My third book, Corporate Sufi, average in terms of success. My fourth book, Life Balance is a Choice, average in terms of success. My fifth book, The Power of Giving, beat Harry Potter. It beat Harry Potter at number one in Amazon. It was number one on Amazon twice. It was number one on Barnes & Noble. Penguin from New York picked up the book. It won a Nautilus Gold Award for books that changed life. It went into 10 languages. I never looked look back. Why? Because for the first four books, I was talking about other things. And yet I changed my career for giving. When I wrote the real book, the real book which had got me the spark when I had the real book with the refugees, I got all my success. So the more you give, the more you, the more you create. The more you give, the more you have. And as much as you're giving away, it's a paradox. The more you give, the more you get. I want to talk about this whole idea of diversity that you mentioned. And I, I'm a large proponent of diversity of thought. And one of the aspects that's, that are the fallouts from the diversity of thought is different opinions, different worldviews, different ways of approaching things, which can often lead to misunderstandings and 
others' opinions who may not understand you. I, I, I'm a big proponent of being true to yourself and, you know, being true to your view of life. And then, of course, adopting and learning from others as your uh, life progresses in, in, in a sense of personal search. I often live by something where it's it's called thoughtful opinions held loosely. Okay. And I want to, can you share some insights on how to live a life true to yourself, yet, you know, be, I think, be self-aware, but of course, you can't worry about everyone's opinions. You know, that's a great question because yesterday, as I said, after my talk, mm-hmm. um, I felt good about the talk because I felt I was true to myself and I, was, I felt I was authentic. However, mm-hmm. however, when I read that comment on the chat line after the talk, I was, I was disturbed. I, I felt sad. I, felt, I, felt, I almost cried and I'm still, I'm still grappling with it. I haven't got over that yet and that's why I'm bringing it now. Because I, I really felt the person's spirit. I felt that I, I, I did not, I did not, uh, I, I did not connect with her, and and she felt, you know, she, she didn't feel I answered the question, and 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 I, and I and I get it now. I get it because because she's coming from a place that you don't have food on the table. You know, I'm worried about my next meal. I'm worried about next day, and here's the guy talking about. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and 36 billion and all that. And even though I came, I didn't, I didn't come from a, a, from a place of condescending her or anything like that. I just, I just answered the question the way it was asked, but then make me realize that sometimes we have to forget our own opinion and forget how we look at things and, and, and look at the paradigm of the other person. Then, you know, then you are really, you know, it's, it's really about the emotional intelligence. It's about empathy. And, and many of us who are successful in our own way feel we don't have that enough. And I, I'm challenging myself. I need to work on that. And I need to work on to be, have more empathy, more emotional connection, and not be in my own bandwagon. And so I, I agree with what you're saying. At the same time, I feel all of us, all of us have room to be more, uh, more aware of the other. I think it's about meeting people and understanding where they're coming from and doing your best at kind of, I, we don't live in a perfect world, Azim. And mm-hmm. so I, I think you have to forgive yourself a little bit, sure, sure. but then uh, you have to, of course, use that as a learning opportunity to uh, apply that in the future talks and presentations and things you give. I think something along the lines of that, you say that you look yourself in the mirror and, you know, you did the best at that moment and then you learn from it and now you'll get to keep that throughout your life. No, that's great. Huh? It's great. I think what you're saying is great. I think, uh, um, uh, you know, you know, in some ways I'm very happy that I'm feeling this way because, because, because it tells me I care. I care. You know, it's not just about me feeling good or not feeling guilty. I care about the sentiments and, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad I care. Because otherwise, I would say to myself, I could easily ignore that and said, no, I did my best. I was honest and that's all that matters. But I'm, I'm happy that I'm feeling this way because, because it is telling me that, that I, I am a good person in some way. And again, I'm not going back to ego because I got to be careful because ego creeps in any, any which way, right? So no, I'm, I'm feeling good that I care, uh, even though I know I did my best in the occasion, in the, in the moment, right? And, and I want to use this caring to even be better as a person, right? That that to me is the best part, right? But, but your point is valid. Your point is spot on, right? 
Yeah, I think I struggle with this too. Sometimes we make mistakes and we feel really guilty about those mistakes. Um, and because in the moment we're trying our best. I, I don't think anybody intentionally goes into a situation and says, you know, I'm going to make this mistake, right? <laughs> so, so Sahil, on that point, I think, I think that the two parts is feeling guilty and feeling good. So on the one hand, I'm feeling guilty in the sense of not uh, having enough empathy for this person. But I'm beyond that. I'm saying that, I, that I'm feeling good, not guilty, because, because it matters to me that she should, uh, next time, if I can do better, I should do better. And if there's some way I can connect with this person, I would love to do that, right? And, and to me, I've, I've kind of transformed the guilt into feeling good, not in a way of justifying or justifying, but in a way of, you know, uh, going from the caring part as opposed to worrying about a mistake uh, or worrying about people may judge me adversely, right? And I think it's a very fine line. And I think we're saying the same thing, but I wanted to clarify just in case, you know, whoever listens to this interview misunderstands uh, the, the point, right? No, I agree. Uh, I want to talk about enjoying enjoying the ride, right? And there's a quote by the Buddha that I really like where he says, you will be judged by three things how well you lived, how much you loved, and how gracefully you let things go that were not meant to be. And I want to go back to the connecting this idea of enjoying the ride and perhaps letting things go that are not meant to be. I think in situations in life, we learn that some things are just not meant to be and we kind of have to let them go. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's, that's a tough one. But, um, you know, yesterday I talked about the moment, right? Uh, right now, I don't know what time is where you are. But in, in Vancouver right now, it's about uh, 11.24 a.m. on May 2nd, 2020, and it's a Saturday. And this is the only moment we have. I mean, this is the only moment that counts. Uh, I could fall dead talking to you right now. You know, I don't know. And so, so worrying about the past, worrying about the future, yeah, I mean, it's a waste of energy. All you need to do is worry about now and give your 100% in the moment. And, and, and that's all that counts. If you are told, if you are told by, by God that all you are going to be counted on is this moment or all that's going to count is today, how is today going to be? You're going to be so focused, so, you know, uh, because this is the, you're told yesterday doesn't count. 10 years ago doesn't count. Tomorrow doesn't count. Only today counts. Only this moment counts. Then you're going to be like that basketball player with one second to go and be a finals, you know, and you have two points behind and you want a three-pointer to win the game, to be a world champion, to be a superstar. You're going to be so present and you want to think about the five years ago or what's going to have for dinner. You're going to be there. And if each moment is like that, magic happens. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy because we are human beings and we are emotional and we carry all the baggage. <laughs> baggage actually affects our productivity. The baggage affects our creativity. The baggage affects our innovation. The baggage affects our focus and our, you know, everything. So, so once you realize, realization is one part, but putting into practice is another part. You got to drill and you got to drill and you got to drill until it becomes as natural as breathing. Then you are the master. And that's mastery. Once you get it, hopefully if you can retain it, then you're in the zone. You're in the zone. You're like Kobe Bryant playing basketball, or you know, or Ronaldo playing football, or you know, Virat Kohli playing cricket. You know, you're in the zone at your peak because you are in the moment, right? 
Azim, I think that was really eloquently put in terms of how to master your mind. Mm-hmm. I think it's, 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 I think if you master the present moment and you make this habitual practice of being present, mm-hmm. in some sense, you've mastered the mind, I mm-hmm. think, in one dimensional. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think this idea of uh, habits is very important in terms of, uh, I, I mentioned yesterday in my talk that when I was doing this talk with Brian Tracy, it was funny. Uh, he, he came the day after I'd come and he has a habit to go swimming when he arrives in a different country. So his body gets adjusted to the new environment. And uh, we're staying at a hotel called Maslow Hotel in Johannesburg. And uh, the, the swimming pool at Maslow on that day was cold. And so he wanted to go on a not a very cold pool. So they took him to another hotel just for swimming and come back. So I had some time on my own. So I was walking around in Maslow Hotel and I came across a quote in one of the workshop rooms. It said, your daily rituals determine your future success. Mm-hmm. Wow. So looking at your daily rituals, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? You know, what's your ritual for the day? And if you can improve those rituals and make them into habits, then that's what determines your future. So, so forming good habits are hard to do, but once you form them, they're hard to break as well. And good habits are formed as well as bad habits. So if you have a habit of smoking, you know, it's hard to break. If you have a habit of waking up in the morning to meditate, it's hard to break. So forming those good habits creates those uh, success. And once you become a master, that it becomes as natural as breathing. If I ask you right now, are you breathing? You'll say, yeah, I'm breathing. And I say, how do you know? And you'll say, because I'm alive. But you're not watching your breath. You're breathing naturally. And when a habit becomes as natural as breathing, it's called mastery. But to get there, you've got to drill and you've got to drill and you've got to drill until it becomes as natural as breathing. And so that was my point, And I'm just elaborating it right now. I want to talk about environment and how that much affects us. I think you've been a big proponent of how your environment kind of affects the way and shapes your life. What are, uh, can you share your thoughts there? So you're talking about the physical environment where you're working and who the people around you are in that environment, or are you talking about the world environment in terms of, you know, climate change and all that? The first, the okay. first part. Yeah. So it's, you know, since uh, the pandemic has happened, I'm not traveling as much. And my daughter, Sahar, you know, just came back from, uh, she was in Kenya. She's, she's formed a foundation in Kenya called Maziva, uh, where she's helping uh, create breast pumps that can save lives. And she was working for Johnson & Johnson, had a great job. She's only, she's been to 55 countries and she left the piping job, went to Kellogg to do MBA and now she's formed a foundation. But when this crisis happened, you know, she came back to Vancouver. So she was with us in, our, in the same house. And it's amazing. She came at the right time. She set up a room for me with a nice office, you know, where I'm speaking for you, with you right now. And I'm using this office to do all my webinars. And, and in this room, I have a very nice cozy room and, and she, my daughter is amazing. She's so organized and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And this environment is really helping me because I can work better. I can think better. I can create better. So yeah, creating that ambience where the, 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 and the ambience helps you to be more, more, uh, more excited about what you're doing is, is a big thing. And I also have a sun deck where it's very more light and more glass. It also helps me to do my creative thinking and writing my books. So it helps me with my creation of that product. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's good to be careful what, what your surroundings are because they influence your thinking. If I may ask, what would be a question, even a faith-related questions that you are still struggling for or still searching for a satisfying answer to and for which you would even welcome other perspectives? 
A great question. Um, you know, uh, the question I'm grappling with right now, or I ask myself regularly, uh, is that um, I was born for a reason. I feel very strongly that I am on the right path, doing what I was born to do. Um, I am 66 years old, uh, even though with God's grace I look 40. But, uh, but uh, you know, I'm asking myself, um, am I using myself optimally? Uh, in the sense that um, uh, if my purpose or my wish was to make sure that whatever I was born for, I want to fully optimize it, uh, not just for, but for me and my family, which is important for me to make sure I have my responsibility with my family and my own life, to, to live a good life and to make sure my family is looked after and they're happy and they're also given a chance to live to their optimum. But what I could do better or what I could do more optimally uh, and what's my gap between what I'm doing now, which I feel I'm doing my best, but I know I could do better. And that gap between like what my optimum is and where I am, I always pray to God to guide me, to be with me, because I really feel, I really feel I'm only a conduit nothing else. Whatever I'm doing now, I'm talking to you, is not what I'm talking. It's a source beyond me who is talking and chosen me to be a conduit. And I'm very, very grateful to be chosen. I know when that grace is taken away, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I can't even talk. My voice could also go away. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And I'm always realizing that I'm only a conduit. I'm not the giver. Okay. But now that I'm a conduit and I've been given this, uh, this ability, how do I optimize this ability? And so, so I'm in that, in that search for the gap and how I can minimize the gap or remove the gap. And, and I'm seeking that answer from God because I feel only God knows the answer. Other people can give me their opinions and I will always value their opinions. And I have an uncle in Toronto who I highly, highly respect. Um, you know, he's my mom's brother. He was the president of the council of the Icon council in Canada for seven years and he's been a really good server of the of the community but i really highly respect him because to me he's an unconditional uncle you know i seek advice for him from him uh, i seek guidance from him and he's always always unconditional and in some way i aspire to be like him and so i do that and i seek uh, uh, you know clarification but at the end of the day it's god who i have to talk to to guide me to make sure that i do the right things because only he knows the highest answer but yes i look i have mentors in my life like my uncle who i look up to for guidance and advice do you you talked about potential and you know what your purpose and meaning is do you consider the time you were an accountant or i think we have a human tendency to think that you know we worry about wasting time and wasting potential um how do you kind of deal with that so let's talk about accounting. So I have three degrees in accounting. I did my ACC in England, my CPA in Canada, and my Charter Financial Planning. And I, I served uh, clients for many, many years in uh, giving them uh, financial advice and whatnot. You know what's happening right now? When I talk to a CEO of a major company, I know more about finance than they do. So right away, they have a lot of respect for me because they don't look at me just as an inspiring speaker, you know, or a motivator or, or, you know, a spiritual guy. But they know that this guy knows business. He understands ROI. So instantly, I build the credibility because I relate to their, their, their life. And so the time I spent in accounting was not a waste of time. If you look at Steve Jobs, you know, when he left college and he was doing these typographic classes, he said that really helped him 
when he was doing his, you know, his work on IPL and IPL. So everything we do, you know, Steve Jobs said, you can only, you know, look at, in hindsight, you look at things, how they helped you. But when you're doing them, you don't know why they're happening. So if you have that trust, I think Alkan III said, you know, that uh, do not, uh, he said, endeavor to put your desire to the event and not the event to the desire. If the wall tumbles, tumble, if the wall tumbles down and crushes your foot, you must say this is the best thing that happened to you. So whatever is happening in your life has a purpose. And the purpose you only realize in, after, in hindsight. But if you believe that, then you know that everything that you're doing, which may not relate directly to what you end up doing, but there is a connection. So my accounting helps me with what I'm doing. You know, my failures in my past helped me because, because people look at me and say, this guy is real. He's not always been successful. He has failed and he's gone through. One year I spoke 185 times when I changed my career across the world. I didn't get a penny. The next year I spoke 187 times in one year. I didn't get a penny. I used to do an event. We used to market like crazy. We had 200 chairs. Only one person would show up. Show up. You know, so humiliating. And, you know, so you go through all this. But it's important to go through that. Because as Rumi says, he says, you know, a chickpea. If you put in boiling water, it gets boiled and boiled and boiled and eventually gets cooked. He says, if in life you haven't been boiled, you're nothing, you're raw. So get boiled. <laughs> Once you get boiled, you become something, you become cooked. So I had to go through the cooking process and I'm so grateful for that because now I can talk from my heart. I don't need to worry about things because I've paid the price and I'm still paying some prices even now and it's good for you because you become better at your craft. But if you haven't paid the price, then you're a weakling. You're still raw, right? So your question being that, you know, regrets about doing something, I think, I think if you look at regrets as learnings, as stepping stones, as paying uh, your dues, then they're not, they're not become any regrets, right? I see. And then what about time, worrying about wasting time? So the only time you have to worry about is the moment now. The rest mm -hmm. is split, right? It's gone. I mean, what's, what's worry? The worry is less, it's a waste of energy <laughs> because worrying will take away the energy to put in the moment now. I'm talking to you now. I need the energy to talk to you. But if I worry about what I did 10 years ago or five years ago or yesterday or even 10 minutes ago or two hours ago, why? Because I can't change it. If I'm learning from that worry, fair enough. No problem, right? I think you have to, yeah, I think you have to differentiate between ruminating and learning. And then the other thing, there's a saying that worrying is like a rocking chair, right? You try to move from place to place, but you really get nowhere. Unless you're, unless you're enjoying the flow of the rocking, right? <laughs> which means that you are saying I'm rocking and I'm at peace and I'm, uh, I'm maybe meditating or contemplating then it's fine right but but if you're worrying then of course it's a waste right yeah I often ask my guests if they have a vision for the future and what vision would you have for the world for the future let's say that the world can achieve in 25 years and what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help achieve this vision? So for me, the ideal optimum vision would be that every human being, every human being has a, has a, has a decent quality of life, you know, in which case they're not poor, they don't, they're not in poverty. And, and if we can live a life, if every human being is not in poverty, I'll be phenomenal. And, you know, there's enough resources in the world to feed everybody. There's a big divide between the rich and the poor. And how do, we, how do we plug that gap? The rich don't need as much. Sometimes having too much is a burden for many people. 
and the poor have not got the basic basic you know uh, livelihood that they can survive the basic uh, human needs that people have for food for clothing for shelter for dignity so i think that would be my vision and then everybody gets the opportunity to live their potential and use the gift that god has given them to make a world a better place that would be the ideal utopia now how do we start that i think this crisis has taught us a lesson this micro micro virus has brought the whole world to its knees it's telling us you are we are so powerful and yet we are so powerless you know we are so brilliant that we can put people to the moon 10 million people to the moon and yet we can't solve this small problem so yes we've got the power we've got the ability but how can we use this power and this ability for a better world not for greed not for hurting other people not for being being selfish i think for me that would be the huge thing and and what we can do is start talking about this message if everybody starts talking about this message and promotes this then we have a great chance to use this crisis and making it an opportunity azim this was extremely insightful thank you thank you thank you my pleasure and uh keep up your good work i think you're doing a wonderful job in uh in work talking to people who are influencers in their own ways and then sharing your work with other people uh, that's maybe your calling maybe your gift and and keep doing it and uh keep it up and thank you thank you for listening to today's episode with candid insights if you enjoyed it don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes if you've already subscribed please leave us a rating or review it does help new people find the podcast i'm sahil badruddin your host and for a transcript of this interview and others visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com <laughs>